You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Now, Holy Spirit, please speak to us from your word that the Father may be glorified in the name of the Son. Amen. When I saw that Psalm 80 was the psalm, the lectionary reading for this first Sunday of Advent, I was intrigued by in what sense this psalm spoke to the first Sunday of Advent. It's a a psalm that sort of stands as a gospel parable. It comes late in Israel's history. It's in the Asaph tradition. It's sharp. It's important, it's significant in how the people of God thought about themselves and how God thought about the people of God. When you think about Advent, we think about the descent of the Incarnate One. Our minds go to Bethlehem and the humility of God to transcend his transcendence in order to bring salvation to humankind. What we may not especially remember is the descent of the people of God. Israel's history, as we know well, begins with Abraham, who is called out of nowhere to begin begin a nation through whom God would bless the nations. During the patriarchs, this family grows, grows and to such an extent that it it becomes its, its own people. Because of famine, Israel is driven into Egypt and suffers decades of bondage under Egyptian oppression. That family of Joseph, become so large that they need to be kept in bondage by the Egyptians. And then God comes and brings an exodus, an exodus out of bondage. And that is a big deal. God institutes the Passover, leads them through the Red Sea, establishes them in the wilderness. Mount Sinai gives them the law. A tabernacle is built. They have become an entity through which God will bless the nations, and it has now all the the symbols and the icons that will lead to the testimony of God's revelation. But then the prophets enter. After Saul and David and Solomon, and they reach their peak in the promised land that Joshua has led them into, and the prophets come, There's Joel, and there's Amos, and there's Jonah, Isaiah, and Micah. And our attention shifts from the royal line to these prophets who are trying to call the people back to God and to a faithfulness to the Word of God. And yet there's this resistance to it. And then Jeremiah comes, along with other prophets, and calls for a judgment. God will judge his people and send them into exile. 
and the Babylonian captivity, Assyria and Persia entering into this as well. Seventy years of bondage now in Babylon where the temple has been destroyed, everything's gone. You know, the first exodus is powerful in symbol, powerful in strength. There's ten plagues and, and all of that. But the second exodus, this remnant, these refugees move back to the promised land weak, discouraged, disoriented, given the task now of rebuilding what had been reinstituting the Passover, rebuilding the temple, reestablishing the law. Difficult, difficult days. The descent of the incarnate one, transcending his transcendence, emptying himself, being made as a person, and the descent of the people of God where God reconstitutes them bringing back those things that were so important for the witness and the revelation of God to the nations. And it's at a discouraging less, a lesser extent of witness, and yet it's how God chose to bring himself back into the message to the nations. The descent of the people of God in order for God to descend as the incarnate one. This psalm calls out for salvation. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock. But this shepherd of Israel is unique. You sit enthroned between the cherubim. And this refrain, restore us, O God, Make your face shine on us. And we think of the Arianic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. May your face shine on us that we may be saved. And this is repeated three times. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. So we need salvation. In my imagination this past week, I, I wondered about the phrase, Jesus saves. And I pictured in my mind a symposium of prophets and apostles gathered together to discuss the phrase, Jesus saves. That which could so easily become a cliche, a throwaway line, with no depth, no foundation, nothing on it. Just Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And maybe what triggered my imagination on this was hearing of a mother who basically has given up on her adult daughter who's in recovery. And the daughter wants her to visit her, the mother to visit her. But the mother says there's no mat and there's no point in visiting her. Jesus, she needs Jesus. And I was like, no. Oh. She needs Jesus in you, mother, loving her in spite of herself, by God's grace in you to love her, not to give up on her. 
I think the prophets would say, no, you can't understand Jesus saves without the depth of Israel's history here, without the voice of David and without the voice of the prophets. You, you can't understand Jesus saves apart from that. And I think the apostles would say, well, I agree, we agree. You can't understand Jesus saves apart from the theology of Galatians or, or Romans or Ephesians. There is depth to this understanding that Jesus saves. God's been speaking patiently, mercifully, through time, but always in this sort of humble, almost below the radar kind of way. I was with a group of six pastors on my front porch. It was windy, it was chilly. We spent 90 minutes talking about our churches. And I would say, generally speaking, that the pastors agreed we don't want to waste this pandemic. This is really sort of bumped up against our seriously unserious world. There is a sense of life's frailty, its vulnerability, its temporariness that we have a, a certain appreciation for physical life and sustaining it in the midst of a pandemic. But they also, I think, were discouraged. One pastor said, I've preached for six years in my congregation, and I don't know as if they're hearing the word. It seems like their fear and their anger and their resentment is kind of like anybody else. He said, my people filter the Bible through cable news rather than filter cable news through the Bible. If I were to preach on Psalm 80 before the pandemic, I would have pitted our cultural sense of significance against a biblical view of salvation. In the secular age, we're taught to face the fact that there is no transcendence, that the universe is without transcendent meaning, without eternal purpose, without supernatural significance. We rest in a kind of exclusive humanism and an expressive individualism. That's what our culture is all about. COVID is teaching us with a certain degree of appreciation that what we want is our life spared physically. And thank the Lord for the biomedical research, the scientists, the doctors, for the development of these vaccines, that hope is on the horizon for the sparing of physical life, spring, summer. Can we hold on? Can we hang in there? And you know, when the vaccine takes place, let's say we're all vaccinated by August. For a while, we will really cherish in-person gathering for a meal in a restaurant, uh, for being able to attend a sporting event, for in-person teaching. We will really, <laughs> there'll be a while here where we still continue to feel the frailty of life 
even though we've been vaccinated, which is a good thing. But then after a while, the resurgence of the concern for significance will enter in. Is there meaning? Is there purpose to life? Is there a transcendent being, a God who's revealed himself? Is there a history of salvation? Is there redemption? At the center of history, is there a cross and an empty tomb? Has our creator become our redeemer? Salvation, it has depth, it has breadth, it's comprehensive. We are in a global health crisis, but we have been for a long time in a metaphysical crisis. To be saved. To be saved is to be saved from sin and death, guilt and estrangement, ignorance of truth, bondage to habit and vice, fear of demons, fear of hell, fear of God. And we're saved for a purpose, to love God, to love others, to love ourselves. We're saved for freedom, for mission, for community. Salvation changes our relationship with God, giving us acceptance with God, forgiveness, reconciliation, sonship, reception of the Spirit, everlasting life. Salvation changes us emotionally, giving us confidence, peace, courage, hopefulness, and joy. Salvation changes us spiritually, giving us prayer, guidance, discipline, dedication, and service. And salvation changes us personally, giving us thoughts, convictions, horizons, motives, satisfactions, and self-fulfillment. Salvation changes us socially, giving us a new community in Christ, compassion for others, and an overriding impulse to love as Jesus loved. There's a lot to live into this new reality. But then I was struck in this psalm by something that I had never occurred to me before. Even though I've studied this psalm, I didn't realize this tension within the psalm. In verse 4, How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You've made them drink tears by the bowlful. You've made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Do you get this? The people of God are seen here as an offense to God and an offense to their neighbors. They're in this kind of state in which they're not pleasing God, and they're not getting along with their neighbors and making enemies of their neighbors. They're scorned and derided by the people in the world. And they're not accepted by God. That's a prophetic kind of indictment, isn't it? That speaks to the people of God. Sometimes I think Christians experience a kind of alien alienation. 
It's not the kind of alienation that they're supposed to experience. I think when you seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness, there is a kind of tension with the world. I think when you are filled with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, I think there's a kind of pushback from a self-oriented world. I think when you're clothed with compassion and kindness and goodness and humility and gentleness, there's a tension there. I think when the Sermon on the Mount becomes a guiding principle in the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, love instead of lust, honesty instead of dishonesty, reconciliation instead of retaliation, prayer instead of revenge. I think when that happens, there's an alienation that comes. But what the people of God are being described here as experiencing is an alien alienation. And it comes from the liberal left of Christendom that discounts the word of God and accepts the spirit of the times. But it also comes from the Christendom of the right that has equated the American dream with the kingdom of God and does not know the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't care about the fruit of the Spirit, and is not clothed with compassion and kindness and goodness and humility and gentleness. Salvation, restore us, O God. Look upon us and save us. And this, I'll close, he uses an allegory that is rooted in the Exodus. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. Okay, that's the people of Israel. You drove out the nations and planted it. They're in, rooted in the promised land. You cleared the ground for it. You took root. You filled the land. The mountains were covered with it, the shade. And it's a beautiful picture. And then God breaks it all up because the people of God are not responsive to the blessing that he has given I think it's from this text that Jesus told the parable of the tenants and the vineyard. A couple days before Jesus said, I am the true vine in the upper room, Jesus told this parable that a landowner had created a beautiful estate, a beautiful vineyard. And as was determined, he sent servants to collect part of the the harvest, and these servants were beaten up. And he kept sending servants, and they kept getting beaten up. And he finally said to himself, and this makes no sense, I'll send my son. Because it's my son, they'll respect my son. Well, they don't respect the son, as you know, they kill the son. And Jesus tells this parable. Days before he will say, I am the true vine. Advent celebrates the coming of the Son. And our responsiveness to the wholeness of the salvation that he has come to bring, this crucified and risen Messiah, it's that which should define us and create hope in a very alienated world. It's great 
And it's the only way it's going to happen is, by, I think, by God's blessing, that our lives are spared physically. And it's great, and the only way it's going to happen is if the Lord gives us a sense of significance that we ourselves have not achieved, but God has blessed us with. And all of this is part of his salvation. As Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.